And let's look at verse 6. The, uh, the soldiers have been sent to arrest Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Judas betrays him with a kiss here. And verse 4, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? Speaking to the soldiers. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. In the Bible, always picture yourself at these kind of events. Think of this, the, an entire band of soldiers, the Bible says. I'm not surely, sure exactly how many that is, but the authorities wanted Jesus, and they wanted him bad. They sent a lot of people out to get him. I imagine those soldiers on their way marching there to go find him with Judas. They might have even been talking, why do we need this many soldiers? It's one guy. Yet when they get there, Jesus speaks three words, I am he. And supernaturally, they, they all fall backward, the Bible says, and they pass out. They fall to the ground. These guys haven't even been touched by Jesus. He didn't yell. He didn't wave his arm or some magic wand. He just spoke to them. And they all fall down, soldiers, the ones with the power. In John's Gospel, just wanted to grab that part. Go to Matthew chapter 26. And this is where we'll spend the rest of our time. Matthew chapter 26. And look at verse 51. <clears throat> you know, as we piece this together, Matthew's Gospel contains this part where Verse 51 in chapter 26, Behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand. And from Luke's gospel, we know this is Peter. Peter drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword unto his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Doesn't Included here, but in Luke's account, it says that Jesus reached forth and he healed this man's ear. Think what these soldiers are seeing. We're out to arrest this guy. He says a few words and we all fall down. And our next memory is we're waking up and we're looking up to the night sky. Jesus literally had to hand himself over to them. There was so much power in him. And yet these soldiers continue, maybe not even questioning, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. One of the disciples slices off the man's ear. Jesus reaches out and tries to run away. No, he heals the man's ear. Basically turns himself over to them because he knows what. His goal is not to escape here. Look at the next verse, verse 53. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to the Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? In other words, I can call angels and I can get out of this if I want. But remember what he said in the Garden of Gethsemane praying just before this? He said, Father, he knew what was coming. And he prayed, Lord, if there's any way we can get this done other than what's about to happen, let's find a way. But nevertheless, at your word, 
He would follow God's will no matter what. And that's why he doesn't call the angels in. Because he knows he has to get somewhere. The goal for the next 24 hours through these trials, this crucifixion, what does he have to do? He has to get to the cross. This is a very important piece of information in verse 53. The idea that Jesus at any moment can call in 12 legions of angels. How strong is one angel? Should we cheat and think, skip ahead to the end of this story where he's resurrected? What happens when the one angel comes down and sits on that stone that was rolled in front of the tomb? One angel. Stone rolls away. Soldiers fall over dead, like dead men. One. Jesus said, I could call 12 legions of them. We know that through all what we're about to read in the next hour, that at any moment Jesus can escape any of the beatings, any of the mockings, the torture, the crucifixion, any of it. And yet at no point does he do it because the goal. What's he thinking toward? He has got to get to Calvary. So many people read it. I'm sure the people that were living through this, so everybody's thinking, they've seen crucifixions, they knew what was coming. And this guy, just like right here, he's not trying to get away. He actually reached out, heals the servant's ear, and then goes with those men. Throughout all of this, you see the plan of God unfolding. Even right here, in the next few verses, it says that in, in other, gospel, other Gospels, that this was done so that the scripture might be fulfilled. And in this example, what it was talking about, that I'll strike the shepherd, it said in the Old Testament, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. It was predicting, it was prophesying the disciples, escape stage left and escape stage right. Exiting, gone. They, were, they left him because of what they saw. They're all of a sudden beating our master. And he's not even fighting back. You know, Peter tried to with the sword, and what did Jesus do? Put your sword back, and he heals him. It shocked them. He's now in the hands of the soldiers. And these soldiers now, in verse 59, they take them Jesus back to the chief priests, the scribes, the high priests, the rulers. And now begins a show trial. Look at verse 60. Uh, verse 59. The chief priests, elders, the council sought false witnesses against Jesus, to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. We know the Bible tells us that they paid these witnesses to try to get some information to make it sound like Jesus was guilty of some offense that they could put him to death. This is what they try. This guy has said that if you destroy the temple, he would rebuild it in three days. They're twisting the meaning of his words. We'll see even later. We can prove by their own mouth that they're lying. They knew that Jesus said, destroy this temple, three days I'll rebuild it. They present it to the council as he pointed to the stone building where the altar is, where we sacrifice and he said you destroy that temple and I'll build it in three days everybody knows we read it in the Bible Jesus said you destroy this temple he was pointing to himself 
If you destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. And why was he saying that? He was predicting, he was prophesying resurrection. And in that instance, when he told the people, and he did it several times, he was being asked about his authority. His authority to do the things he was doing on the earth. And he said, I'll I'll tell you by the authority, and I'll even give you a sign. You destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Another case, he talked about Jonah, where he said, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Very important. Throughout this entire last day of Jesus on the earth, this idea that he said, you kill me, I'll be back in three days. Watch how this jumps out of the scriptures. Here at the trial, look at verse 62. And the high priest arose, said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses against thee? But Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of the living God. Whether thou be the Christ. This is the reason in that sentence why they are putting him on trial. Over and over, they're trying to find out. They know the answer. These people are, I call it a show trial because they weren't looking for information. If you and I went down to the district court here tomorrow, if that court is being run properly and impartially, the proceedings are in such a way as to find the truth. You don't start with a certain idea and try to prove it. The chief priests running this trial want Jesus to die, and they're trying to get witnesses to agree to that. A legitimate trial doesn't do that. It brings in all information and deciphers what is the truth. That's the last thing that is being that has taken place in Jesus' trial here. They have talked to these witnesses before. If we put you up there, will you lie and say, he said he would destroy the temple and bring it back in three days? See, their temple, they worship that area. They're lying. They're not after the truth. And we'll see that to the nth degree throughout this sermon. The guy says, he adjures by the living God. Are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? The idea is, we're putting you on trial. You've said you're the Son of God. Prove it. Show us. Do you really believe you are? Because in the Jewish tradition, that was blasphemy to say that you were equal to God. So if they can prove this, they're going to put him to death. That phrase, if you be the Christ, the Son of the living God, does it trigger anything in your mind? Think to John chapter 1. Philip, who would become one of the disciples, he had followed John the Baptist and he had heard Jesus. After hearing Jesus, he comes to a conclusion that Jesus, is there's something special here. He goes running, it tells us, to find his brother Nathaniel sitting under a tree. And he tells Nathaniel, you've got to come see this guy. He is who Moses, the prophets, the Old Testament, it's what they've been talking about, the Christ, that promised one, we found him. You have got to come see him. So that word Christ has a very special meaning in the Bible. These men are asking Jesus, are you the Son of God? Are you the Christ? 
Look at Jesus' response in verse 64. He saith unto them, You have said it. You see, they had asked him these kind of, this basically the same question throughout his ministry. He raised people from the dead to prove it. He had walked on water. He healed people. They could talk to Lazarus, whom he brought out of the tomb. There was a young man who was born blind, and they interviewed him and asked him, Who made thee whole? All of these proofs that Jesus was who he said he was, and still they're asking him. So Jesus just says, You keep after me about it. I've told you, I've showed you, and yet you're the one that has this problem with it. By your actions and your words, you've proven I'm the Son of God. You just have this problem with it. And now Jesus says, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. God has a way of always talking a lot farther down the future than what we're talking about. Jesus is talking about the nation of Israel. The next time the nation sees me, you'll see me coming in the clouds of heaven and I will be at the right hand of power. I won't be this person being mocked in a trial. I won't be this person being hit with a reed over the head and asked to prophesy which one of you soldiers did it while I'm blindfolded. You won't be spitting in my face. The next time I come, you're going to see the most powerful vision you've ever seen. Next verse is the high priest comes to the conclusion he has admitted he's the Son of God. He's blasphemed. We can kill him. They take him to Pilate. Look at chapter 27, verse 1. When the morning was come, all the chief priests, elders of the people, took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And When they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Look at verse 11. Jesus stood before the governor, before Pilate, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? What's Pilate asking him? Even Pilate wants to know, Are you the king of the Jews? I'm quite certain Pontius Pilate was not a follower of the word. He didn't know the Bible. He was not a follower of Jesus. And yet he knows about this idea in the earth that Scripture has prophesied somebody coming. He asked them, asked him, are you the king? Are you that king, the king of the Jews? I want you to keep that in mind. I'm intentionally belaboring that point to focus. All of these trials, what's on the mind of the rulers? They're doing it in a mocking way, but it is about whether or not this person that's standing before us is the Son of God. Now, they didn't just pull some Steve or some Kevin out of the crowd and say, is this the Son of God? Remember who they're talking to. Everyone knew the circumstances somewhat surrounding his birth, how he even got here. Some young woman who didn't even know a man was found pregnant by the Holy Spirit. That wise men came, showed up in our country looking for a king, and they went, as the scripture said, he must be born in Bethlehem. So that's where they went to find him when Jesus was born. Angels appeared in the heavens and talked to the shepherds and said, go down to Bethlehem and you'll find him wrapped in swaddling clothes. There were all these miracles surrounding his entrance into this world. Herod had killed every kid two years and younger trying to wipe him out, but couldn't even get him that way. An angel had warned Joseph in a dream and Joseph took his family to Egypt. 
just like the Bible said it would happen. Jesus walked on the water. He healed people. It was miraculous. And this is the person that they have before him. And they're asking him, are you the Son of God? That's what this is all about. We're in, look at verse 15. At this feast now, as this was taking place, the governor, Pilate, was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would. Every year, the Jews had this feast, this celebration, and there was a custom that the Roman governor would release unto the people any prisoner that they chose. He asked them in verse 17, Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas, who was a murderer, or Jesus, which is called Christ, even Pilate. Again, Pontius Pilate refers to Jesus as, and he might have been doing it mockingly. He's saying, do you want this murderer, or do you want somebody who is said he is the promised one? He's the Son of God. He is the Christ. Do you want him? They had envy. For envy, they had the other guy delivered. Look at verse 19. When he sat down on the judgment seat, Pilate's wife said unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. Even God is working through Pilate's life to let him know nothing wrong with this. He is innocent. One thing I find very interesting in this whole story, you do not find this Roman governor convicting Jesus of anything wrong. He even washes his hands of him. But he is scared. He's scared to lose his power. He doesn't want unrest among the Jewish people that he's governing. And he doesn't want Rome to send down a bunch of soldiers, wipe all those people out in a war, and have him be removed from his power. He wants peace. And to that end, he gives in to what the mob is asking for. They want Jesus. They want him killed. Look at verse 21. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the two, Jesus or Barabbas, will ye that I release unto you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? Everything about this trial is whether or not Jesus really is the Son of God. At every turn, at the trial with the high priest, at the trial with the Romans, who are not Jewish, they may not even be all that knowledgeable of Jewish traditions and Jewish laws, but they know about this idea, that the Jews have been telling the world that somebody's coming. Pilate's now over this. Is this the guy? When Pilate, in verse 24 saw that he could prevail nothing, but rather a tumult was made. He took water, washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. Verse 27, The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall, gathered him into the whole band of soldiers. Let's stop right here for a second. Is it not possible actually maybe even probable that the soldiers who are now taking Jesus 
into the commons area where they're going to get pretty rough, really rough. That this is the same group of soldiers, at least some of them, were there that went to get him in the garden. Think if that's the case. The soldiers that went to get him at night, Jesus turned and said, I am the guy, I am he, and they all supernaturally just fall down and faint. Now we're being asked, this guy, he then reached out and healed one of our men. His ear grew back instantly. We're supposed to take him down and start beating on him, scourging him. That means you tie him up to a post. It's hard for me to even say these things because I'm that squeamish on being tied up. I don't like to be on the bottom of a dog pile. To be tied up knowing that somebody has the cat of nine tails and is going to rake the skin off your back and some of the flesh and break, open your flesh. We have some very slow-learning soldiers here. The people that went to arrest him and saw what they saw. People falling down, him healing. He never once begs for his life. When he's before Pilate, how many times do we read that Pilate or the Jewish leaders both said, don't you realize we have power to crucify you or to let you go? Why don't you defend yourself? He says nothing. Of course, we know the answer why. The Bible had predicted this. It had said he, this person, the Christ, he would be led dumb, D-U-M-B, silent. He would be led dumb like sheep to the slaughter. You don't find where Jesus is making one mad dash trying to escape, and they have to tackle him by the ankles and drag him back there. When they're up on Calvary, you do not read where Jesus is scrambling around there in the dust trying to get away. People, he, he is almost crawling up on the cross because he knows he has to get there. Because paying the penalty for sin involves all of this. The soldiers all see this. Can you imagine how many times the soldiers saw somebody being chained up to that thing, begging for their life? Or before Pilate, when they're about to Drop the gavel and decide whether or not you're going to be crucified or whether or not you're simply going to be let go and you go free. People would have dropped to their knees. Crucifixion was so visibly horrible. Everybody knew what it was like. They crucified people on the road coming into town so that people that came into their towns knew if you cross the Romans and their laws, this is what happens to you. So when you're standing before Pilate and he says, crucifixion or set free, Human beings fell on their knees begging for their life. But not Jesus. He doesn't say a word in his defense as they lie about him, as they make up accusations. These soldiers are saying all of this. And yet, look at verse 28, Matthew 27. Chapter 27 and verse 28. They stripped him, put on him a scarlet robe, and when they had plaited a crown of thorns, They put it on his head, a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, who? King of the Jews. They're making fun of what idea? Same thing they were trying him over. Whether or not he is the king of the Jews. Is he the son of God? Because see, God chose this people. 
called Abraham and started an entire nation of people with one man, an elderly man, and miraculously brought this people into the earth as a tribe, as a family, as a nation. Now that special people who God chose, they are so thoroughly rejecting Jesus. Now at this point, it's the soldiers, the Roman soldiers. They put a robe on him, a thorn, a crown of thorns pressed into his skull. They're bowing before him and they're mocking, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. After everything we've discussed of what those soldiers saw in Jesus' behavior, think any of them just might have had the thought, what if we're wrong? What if this guy really is the Son of God? The Christ who is supposed to come into the world? Because that is the great irony, that question. Is he or is he not the Christ? It decides where every single human being will spend eternity. The answer to that question, do you think? We sit here 2,000 years later. The reason we join ourselves together in a like-minded group of believers in this church is we've all come to that same conclusion. We've heard the evidence, we've read the story, and without a doubt, this had to be the Christ that God had promised. He was the Son of God. These soldiers standing here mocking him, has it even crossed their minds that one day, if they're wrong, he really will be the one sitting on a great white throne. They'll stand before him, and after spitting in his face, mocking him, punching him, hitting him over the head as he's blindfolded, asking him to prophesy which one did it, if they're wrong about who he is, they will be back in front of him again on their knees. This time, it'll be too late for mercy. The Bible tells us it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. What we do in this life gives us our reward in the afterlife. And here they are. Verse 30, they spit upon him, took the reed, smote on his head, and after that, they mocked him. They took the robe off from him, put his own raiment on him, and led him away to crucify him. Skip down to verse 36. After they crucify him, they're sitting down, they watched him there, and they set up over his head his accusation. Written. This is Jesus, who? The King of the Jews. Now, they are mocking him. The people that wrote that sign didn't write it because they think he's the King of the Jews. But, you can still see this is what the trial is about. This is what the accusation is, that this guy thinks he's the Son of God, that he is the King of the Jews. In every trial, in every accusation, it's always about, is this guy really divinity? Is he the Son of God? Next verse. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right, the other on the left, and they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple, and buildest it in three days, save thyself. Remember that phrase? This is what the high priest put him on trial for. He told 
They brought the witnesses in and they paid the witnesses to lie and twist the meaning of his words. Jesus had said, tear down this temple, my body, and I'll raise it up in three days. They twisted his words and said, he meant, tear down our wonderful, glorious, golden temple. And we can put him to death if he's trying to tear down that temple. Well, he didn't mean that. Now, these people, we know they're lying because what are they saying now? They're now standing before him and they're saying, tear down this temple. Well, here's your body. It's dying. Are you going to raise it up? They're always mocking him over this. Next verse, likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Now this is very interesting to me. If he be the king of Israel, that's what this whole discussion, accusation, trial was about. They said, if he'll come down from that cross, well, sure, we'll believe him. Now, they're mocking him because they obviously don't think he's coming down from the cross. But let's stop and think about this for a second. Which would be harder? For Jesus, while he's still alive, to come down off of that cross? Or would it be more difficult to wait until death actually has him in his grips and he's been dead for three whole days and then come out of the tomb. You see, if Mark was up on a cross right now, we could maybe pull the nails out and if he wasn't beaten too bad, we could use some very good medical care and we could very likely save him. He could come down from the cross. He could survive it. You think we'd have a better chance of saving him or wait until he gives up the ghost and he's in a tomb for three days? See what's harder? The chief priests are saying, come off that cross and we'll believe you that you're the Son of God. God is never scared of doing something so much harder than everybody else imagines. Jesus doesn't do that. Number one, we know why. He had to pay the penalty for sin. He couldn't come off until what? When you get in the book of John and you read this account, Jesus says a couple of words. says three words that are amazing. He's been tortured, crucified, lied about, scourged, had the skin, the flesh ripped off his body, spit on. He was given vinegar to drink. They pierced him with a, with a spear. and Blood and water came out. And through all of that stuff, what did Jesus say? Was he up there begging for his life? He was almost as a checklist in his mind. Right before he dies, what does he say? It is finished. What, was, what is finished? What is he talking about? All the things that had to be done to pay the penalty for sin. Nobody's ever died like that. Nobody's ever died with visibly something on their mind that they're taking care of someone else's debt. Jesus died that way. It's finished. These guys that are standing there, they're mocking him, saying, well, you know, you could, come, you could prove to us that you are who you say, or you could come down right now, and we will believe that you are the king of the Jews, that you are the Christ. Well, we know that the liars that they are. 
Because when Jesus does something much more difficult than that, he ends up letting, as the Bible says, he was obedient to death. He actually made himself available to death and let death get a hold of him completely. He was in the tomb three days. He comes out of the tomb doing something much more difficult, being raised from the dead. And do those chief priests believe in him then? Of course not. Now stop and think for a second. This, this is worth a little bit of thought. How dark can the human heart and mind be? There was literally nothing that Jesus could do to convince those rulers that he was the Son of God. People, he did everything. He even did the things that they demanded. Well, they asked him to come off the cross. He didn't do that because he had to stay there, pay the penalty. But even after it got worse, when he actually was dead, he came up out of the grave. And those people, as we'll see here in a little bit, they still cursed God. That's a very good insight into how dark the heart of man can get. And keep in mind who those people were. They were the doctors of the law. The law that God had given. God had pulled aside a special people and entrusted into their hands the oracles of God. And it's these people, these people that no matter what, they cannot be convinced that Jesus is the Son of God. Now that we had some slow-learning soldiers in here, we're going to see at least one or a couple of them came to the right conclusion. Look at verse 45. Now starting here, we get, if you read this and stop and think about what you're reading, the most remarkable physical signs on planet Earth. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. That's noon to 3 o'clock. Jesus is on the cross at this time. and During those three hours, the Bible says that the land became dark, middle of the day. If this was a normal, scheduled time church service, and we were getting done here at, say, noon, as most churches do, Steve was the first one out the door. He went out there. It was pitch dark at noon. Quite certain he would not just calmly stroll to his vehicle, put the key in, turn it on, turn the headlights on, and drive home. He would probably, very likely, come shrieking back in here to let us all know there's something quite strange out there. It's dark. Middle of the day. 2,000 years ago, they didn't pull out their flashlight. They didn't pull out the light on their cell phone to lighten their path. Darkness. What kind of impression would that make? That the guy who we have on trial here, he says he's the son of God, they've brought witnesses to lie against him so that they have occasion to put him on the cross. He's now on the cross. As soon as they nail him in there, the lights go out. It's dark for three hours in the middle of the day. No, no human, no, none of those people had ever seen that. They'd never seen anything like that. They never saw a video of it. They never saw pictures of it. About the ninth hour, verse 46, Jesus cries with a loud voice, 
My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they heard this said he was calling for Elijah. They run, they get a sponge, and they give him uh, some vinegar. And that's because the Old Testament had predicted that that's what would happen. Verse 50, Jesus cried again with a loud voice, and he yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom. There's some remarkable significance to that. The veil, everybody knows that the veil is a word used to describe something that's hidden. In the Christian marriage ceremony, the the bride has a veil over her face, and that is to signify that she has been kept hidden. She's been kept pure. When the vows are read and they're pretty much legally married, the veil is lifted. The husband then can kiss his bride, and it's a signal in front of the whole world that they are now becoming one. The veil, that what was hidden, is now being let loose. It's in the open. It's, it's past its time of being just kept. The veil of the temple, nobody went past that veil in the temple except who? The high priest. I mean, not even all the priests, just a couple, one or two of the very top office holders. And they only went in there a couple times a year. So nobody knew what it looked like in there. And here it is, the moment Jesus yells with a loud voice, he says, it is finished. He gives up the ghost. His head drops, and that veil rips in two, and now everybody can look in there. It would be a little bit similar today of Fort Knox. You don't get many looks inside of Fort Knox. It's one of the most heavily guarded places we have. They, do, they used to never even let cameras in there, no documentaries. Nobody knew what it even looked like in there. It would be similar that if lightning came down and struck whatever cave that's held in or whatever building, and it was split open, and now the whole world could just look and see the piles of gold. This is what happened when Jesus died. The veil of the temple rips, and everybody can look in there. Comma. The earth did quake. While they're standing there, it just so happens that this guy who said he was the Son of God that walked on water, that was born of a virgin, that healed people, that allowed himself to be taken by the soldiers to be crucified, as soon as he dies, the whole earth starts to shake. I, I actually do have a strange desire to know what it is like to experience an earthquake. What is that feeling? To have the very earth underneath you give way that, that has to be such an unsettling feeling. You see when people get into something that's unsecure. You may get up in the top of a deer stand or some high tower that's moving with the wind. What do people do? They immediately almost drop to their hands and knees for fear of security. These people would never have done what we do where you turn on a computer screen and look at pictures of an earthquake in California where you can see buildings falling, bridges collapsing, they would have seen, they didn't know that. Very likely, none of them had ever even experienced an earthquake. And here it is, the moment this guy gives up the ghost, after the lights came back on, after three hours of darkness, and the rocks start breaking apart, something going on here. 
comma, the rocks rent. And look at verse 52. The graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection, went into the holy city and appeared unto many. I want to come back to that. If I forget, somebody raise your hand, throw a shoe up here, that we come back to that idea. Next verse. Now the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they, they feared greatly. Well, I would imagine if you had any brain working, everybody would be scared. But he said, truly, this was the Son of God. We got one Roman soldier at least that his faculties were working, and he actually finally came to the right conclusion. This is amazing. This guy who I went and helped arrest, brought to the trial, we kneeled down in front of him and mocked him for being, as he said, a king. We spit in his face. We put nails in his body, put him on this tree, and killed him. And you know what? He was the Son of God. Without This guy says truly, he's absolutely convinced What's amazing to me is all the people who saw those things and didn't conclude that he was the Son of God. Put yourself there. How could you see earthquakes, darkness in the middle of the day, the very nature of Jesus on the cross, forgiving people, saying it's finished, he's trying to accomplish something up there, healing a soldier's ear that was cut off, all these things. How could you not come to the conclusion there was something divine about this? And yet, you know why Israel was destroyed in a few decades after this event? In A.D. 70 is because they didn't accept it. And they were scattered into all the earth. Through persecution, those Jews were carried into the four corners, everywhere. Into the Orient, into Russia, Europe, Africa, the Americas later. Remarkable that they couldn't come to that conclusion. Now, Jesus has died. Verse 57, there is a rich man of Arimathea, Joseph, and it says that this guy was a disciple. He was one of the rulers, but he was scared of what the other rulers would think of him, so he kept it secret. He was privately one of Jesus' disciples. But now that he's dead, the Bible tells us that he boldly goes into Pontius Pilate and it says he begs, he craves the body of Jesus. Takes him down after Pilate agrees, wraps him in some very expensive cloth and puts him in a rich man's tomb where nobody had ever been laid. The... Verse six, look at verse 62. The next day that followed, the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I'll rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, He is risen, from the dead. What's on their mind again throughout this entire story? That that idea that Jesus had put forth of them that you tear down this temple in three days I'll be back. 
It's on their mind, isn't it? Now we see we know they're lying. When they tried him, they said, he said, tear down the temple, and they purported him to say that stone temple where the altar was. Now they're saying he's dead, and we don't want his body coming out of the grave. You see, they knew what he meant. They knew he meant about his body, but they were lying. But think of this. They're now going to send soldiers where? To guard a dead man sealed with a heavy stone in a tomb. How would you like to be given those instructions? Sir, take you and your three best friends and you go down and you guard this. On your way there, you get halfway there and you're thinking, There's a, I could be planning garden. I could be on Facebook for the next three days. I'm going to go down in the cemetery and we're going to guard a dead man. But see, they were looking to make sure nobody got in there. And what happens? It wasn't that anybody got in there. What happened was, the one that was inside of there, he actually was who he said he was, and he broke out. The thought process of everybody involved here is remarkable to look at. These chief priests, they send these soldiers down there and think what the soldiers might be thinking that first whole day. We're down here guarding a dead man. He's rolled up in that tomb. There's absolutely nothing to do here. Second day rolls around. You know, he did say the third day he would come out. But you're still bored. It's only the second day. When the third day rolls around, you maybe wonder, we get through this day and nothing happens, And about that time, Matthew chapter 28, verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake. The Bible tells us when he died, there was an earthquake, that the rocks rent, they broke apart. I don't know if that means just in that general localized area around where the cross was, if it was the entire region, the country, the whole earth, I don't know. But here it says... Three days later, when he's resurrected, there is a great earthquake. This was a big one. And what causes it? It tells us that an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. How many angels? One. Jesus said, at any moment I could have more than 12 legions of angels come. took one. And the Bible doesn't record that he even perspired about it. It paints the picture almost as the rock rolling itself back and the angel sitting on it. These angels are powerful. His countenance in verse 3 was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him the keepers did shake and became as dead men. I would guess so. They've been sent to guard the tomb to make sure nobody gets in there. The spears are pointed out. Little do they know that behind them, an angel dressed, he looks like lightning. His clothes are as white as snow, is rolling back the stone and sits on it. And Jesus comes out. You better believe they're dropping over his dead men. They had spit in his face. They had mocked him for claiming to be 
the Christ, the King of the Jews, the Son of God. The rulers had said, come down off the cross and then we'll, we'll believe you. Jesus waits until he's three days dead in the tomb. And he comes back to life after having paid the penalty of sin. And now there is all proof that he really is the Son of God. It tells us in the next verses here, starting at verse 11, 12, 13, 14, that those keepers, those soldiers, go running back to the people that hired them and say, listen, here's what happened. And they didn't say that we fell asleep while doing drugs and the disciples came and took his body. No. They told him what, the Bible says, what happened. They told them what happened. And what did happen? That a dadgum angel had come and rolled the stone back. How'd you like to go report that to your bosses? And what do the chief priests respond? See, my first thought is, baby, I'm falling down on my knees, and I am begging for mercy from the Almighty God. He's just proven he is the Son of God. He's come out of that thing. We even sealed the tomb. We sent peoples to guard a dead man, and he got out still. I'm pretty sure he is who he said he was. What's their response? Here, boys, here's a boatload of money. You go spread the word that the disciples came and stole his body, and that's why we can't find it. See what the human heart can contrive? In Revelation, it tells us that there will be some people on the earth who know that God is God, and they still won't accept him clench their fist, and they curse God in heaven. People, that's why it's so bad in Revelation. Because that's who's left here on the earth. People that know God is there, that know He's true, that He's almighty, that He's holy, and they hate Him for it. And what's God's response? He has nothing left but angels that pour bowls of wrath into the earth. And it gets nasty. Because those people refuse to accept Him. You have an example here the first time he came. And you have those same examples the second time he comes. That's right. The story doesn't end here. When you get finished with the Gospels, you turn in the book of Acts and what happens? It describes this scene. Jesus is there with his disciples. He begins to levitate to go up into the clouds. And as they watch him, he disappears. And who's standing right next to him? White as snow? There's an angel. And it says, this Jesus whom you've seen go into heaven, he shall come, quote, in like manner. In other words, he's coming back the same way he left. All these promises that he was mocked for being the Son of God. What do we hear on the earth today about the idea that he is coming again? The church gets mocked over this. There's even Christian denominations. Christian, in quotes, denominations that are scared to even talk about this. We, we don't want to be known as people that think Jesus is coming back here. I mean, that's kind of goofy. Let's not talk about it. You better. The Bible tells us to encourage one another with the thought that our redemption draweth nigh, that he's coming back. And guess what? This time when he comes back, he's not going to have a crown of thorns dug into his skull. He will not have a reed hitting him over the head with a blindfold on and people mocking him, saying, Prophesy 
which one of us hits you. He will not be at a show trial, and he will not be bleeding. He'll be riding a white horse, the Bible tells us, with war in his eyes, because he's coming to cleanse the earth from all evil forever. Think that's part, a big part of the story? I would say so. I'd put that in the top five. He's actually coming again. And the same people that mocked and the same people that tried to cover it up, that paid witnesses to say it didn't happen, couldn't happen, there's going to be something just like that at the end about this idea, the fact that he is coming back. There is one part of this whole story that I want to end with. When Jesus is resurrected, he comes and appears to his disciples. The Bible tells us they're in an upper room. The doors are closed. The windows are locked. They're scared that the soldiers, the Romans, maybe are going to come after them next. I mean, after all, they've just crucified the guy that led us down this path. Maybe they're going to come after us. Who comes through the walls? Jesus appears in their midst, and he shows them nail prints, print, except the fact that Thomas wasn't there with them. Jesus leaves. When Thomas comes, they tell him, uh, you missed it, sir? Jesus was here. And what is Thomas's response? Remember, when the women went down to the tomb, and they were the first ones to see the stone rolled away, they went running back to the disciples. They tell the disciples what they saw, and the disciples jump for joy? No. The Bible says the disciples thought they were telling idle tales. They didn't believe it. Then after a while, Peter and John, John get up and they run down there. and They see it for themselves. But now, when Jesus appears, Thomas is not there. What does Thomas say when they tell him? Thomas says, until I touch the holes in his hands, in his feet and put my hand in his side where that spear went, Thomas makes a declaration. He says, I will not believe. When I read that nowadays, I think he's on the knife's edge. He is telling the world that he will not believe. The Bible clearly tells us you need to believe in the resurrection. And Thomas is saying, Until I, if I physically can't touch it, I won't believe it. Then Jesus appears and he tells Thomas, here, touch and feel. The Bible says Thomas believed. He said, my Lord and my God. And what did Jesus say after that? In John, I think, chapter 20. Jesus says to him, Thomas, you believed because you've seen me. And you've even, you handled me. Blessed are those who have never seen me, and yet they believed. Who's he talking about? That's right, that's us. None of us were there. And we didn't see it. But Jesus' own words, if you hear this story, the plan of God, the amazing evidence, and to me, how can you not believe it? Maybe it's just the way I was raised, but how can you not believe it? Jesus said, if you hear that story and if you believe it, what happens? He has a special Bible word. You are a blessed, person. I mean, you're saved, absolutely. Don't ever wake up and look at yourself in the mirror and think that there's something against you, that you're cursed. 
Jesus says, if you believe, even though you've never even seen him, there's something special. There's a propitious smile in heaven directed down to earth towards you because you believe that story. Blessed are those that have never seen me, and yet they believed. There were people in Jesus' time, tons of them, who saw the earthquake, who saw the darkness from noon to three, who saw him heal the soldiers, who saw him climb willingly on that cross. They didn't think he was the Son of God. What do you think judgment's going to be like for them? Tough. But for those of us who weren't even there, but we take God's word for it, Jesus' own words, that person is blessed. Let's pray. I didn't go back to that's exactly right. The Bible says that after Jesus was resurrected, we read those verses. After he was resurrected, the graves were opened around Jerusalem. And it says that the, the bodies of the saints, they came out of the, they came out of the grave, they walked into Jerusalem and appeared to many. Put that in perspective of the events surrounding the death of Jesus. Daylight altered. It was dark from noon to three. Earthquakes, never even felt one. There's people there that probably had never seen one, knew what it was. Death lost its grip. People were coming out of graves. Do you see why 2,000 years later we mark time as 2017 in the year of our Lord, A.D. We mark time because of his life, because of the things we're talking about, the events that surrounded his life in just the last four days of it was absolutely miraculous in every second. There's a reason the whole world changed. Son of God was here. Father, we pray that the seeds that may have been sown today, that they would grow in fruition in our hearts, our lives. We pray that you would embolden, strengthen us, encourage us in your word. We pray, Father, that you would keep pastor, deliver him home to us, healthy and safe, rested. We pray, Lord, that we would all be the best friends that we could to him and Tiff, that we would always add to them and never subtract. In Jesus' name, amen.